Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Joining me for Community Stories, we have a research and policy director from Freshwater. Her name is Carrie Jennings. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Well, Carrie, tell me a little bit about what is Freshwater, first of all. Well, Freshwater is a 51-year-old nonprofit, Minnesota-based. We started on Lake Minnetonka before the Clean Water Act. And that was at a time when water quality was starting to become problematic on Lake Minnetonka. And a couple guys in the garage started testing the water um, to see what could be done about that. And it grew into a large lab on Lake Minnetonka at one point that was eventually became part of the University of Minnesota College of Biological Sciences. And now we've kind of refocused on the science that exists out there. I still am a, I'm a PhD geologist and I have worked across Minnesota. So we, we still have scientists on staff, but mainly we're working on the solutions. So we're working on policy solutions, people-driven solutions, and adult education um, efforts across the state to clean up our water environment. And we don't just think about that as surface water, but we think about the groundwater as well. Now, we have a lot of lakes down here in southern Minnesota, Lake Washington, Madison Lake, et cetera. Have you done any work with those particular areas? You know, our work in that area has, in general, been on the rivers and the problems that the rivers are seeing. But I am well aware of those areas as well because I spent the first 25 years of my career working um, in a mapping role at the Minnesota Geological Survey. So I've probably driven more roads than most (laughs) people in Minnesota and canoed more rivers. Um, because you just crisscross the state when you're mapping. And it was actually that work that brought these surface water quality issues to my attention and made me shift in my career. Oh, interesting. Now, there was a recent study done by the University of Minnesota, the University of Kansas, and the University of California, Irvine, and others that found the best and most cost-effective way to reduce nitrate and sediment lows is wetland restoration and construction along, in uh, in this case, most recently, the Lesueur River and other tributaries. So I want to talk a little bit about that study and what it found in that Lesueur River, which is in our immediate area. Yeah, I would love to talk about that study because it's actually one in a long line of studies that has been conducted in that general area, um, not unbeknownst to the people that live there, but it really, again, started with the mapping that was originally done down there when I was in Blue Earth County uh, mapping 15 years ago. Uh, a friend of mine at the Pollution Control Agency came to me and said, there's a problem with the sediment load in the rivers down here. Can you help? And so 15 years ago, um, we built some teams that started working on closing the sediment budget. And that means understanding where the sediment is sourced, where it's stored, how it's delivered to the mainstem Minnesota, and then where it goes from there. And we found something uh, new and revelatory about that river, and that was that field erosion, although it plays a role still, the large increases in sediment to the river were actually coming from river widening, ravine lengthening, and somewhat from bluff collapse. And I know people want to point to the bluffs because they're dramatic Mm -hmm. on the lower reaches of the rivers down there, but 
Um, the bulk of the sediment is really coming from uh, the widening of the rivers and the migration of ravines. And what followed that original sediment study, and I will get to your question on nitrogen, was a um, phosphorus is usually attached to sediment. And sure. so somebody else, Anna Baker, who's now with the United States Geological Survey, um, studied as part of her PhD with one of our original scientists, the phosphorus budget. And what followed after that was Amy Hansen, who was at the St. Anthony Falls Research Center um, in the University of Minnesota's campus when she was a postdoc there. She started work on the nitrogen budget. So all of these people, it, it sounds like they're from exotic locations, <laughs> but all of them were affiliated with the University of Minnesota, St. Anthony Falls Lab, or a national research NSF-funded center that was at St. Anthony Falls Lab for 10 years, and that's how some of these maybe more distant people got involved. They decided to focus on the Lesur River watershed when the question was, what river is the most interesting and has the most interesting problems, the Chesapeake Bay with the tributaries to it or the Minnesota River and the tributaries to it? And I feel like I won that game. Um, I convinced this high-quality group of researchers to focus on the Minnesota River and the problems that we were seeing in it. And so this latest paper with Amy Hansen and Jacques Finlay and Patrick Belmont and others, I can't remember all their names, grew out of that work that we started 15 years ago. And what it also represents is that when you give a little bit of state money to a group of scientists, they go with it, and they continue working on it throughout their careers and with their graduate students. And it is a very interesting and complete study, and the science is just so well documented that it really positions us well for the solutions. And that's what this paper was getting at. We, we know nitrogen is an issue in corn country mm -hmm. because corn requires a lot of it but has these tiny little roots, and you end up applying too much, sure. a lot of it is lost, and it comes out the tile drains. In fact, the tile drains are the largest source of nitrogen leaving the state and delivering um, nutrients to the Gulf of Mexico. So if we could just like put a valve on the tile drains and extract the nitrogen, that would be ideal. But instead, what they found was the most cost-effective was in the upper reaches of the Lesur watershed, and I think um, of upstream of St. Clair, upstream of, way upstream of Good Thunder, um, upstream of Buford Ditch is where you have a, a low relief landscape and a lot of times there's wide channels that actually are wetlands adjacent to the river or part of the river corridor and if you can just filter the water through those wetlands before it is rushing out in that steep part of the river you know downstream of those places I just named then you can actually absorb it into those wetlands instead of just flushing it down the drain. What initially set off the alarm bells about this particular tributary? It was the sediment. So, um, it, I mean, how does one measure it, that, to, that, it, that it matters, you know, that it's a problem? Oh, sure. Well, it's a well-gauged watershed. There are gauges at the mouth, and there are gauges upstream in a few key places along bridges. And we could see that not only was it carrying a lot of sediment, the sediment load had increased. I think we've seen a seven-fold increase in sediment coming out of that basin. But, you know, the Minnesota River, you've probably seen that iconic picture that's taken from the air down at um, the Dote or the confluence by Fort Snelling State Park. Um, the Minnesota's always going to be muddier than the Mississippi. It's always going to be muddier than the St. Croix. 
and that's just because of kind of the upside-down nature of those rivers, and I'll explain that in a second. So I don't have um, unrealistic expectations for how clean the Minnesota can be, but it can be a lot cleaner than it is now. Um, and what has changed, of course, since Europeans settled is land use and the way we drain the land, and that hurries water into the rivers and the ravines leading to the rivers, and it just makes them more erosive. So we're really accelerating the pace of glacial or geologic processes. Um, and we're going to end up with a landscape like southeastern Minnesota a lot faster than the 100,000 years it took to create southeast Minnesota. Well, what is south, know, what doing, is it like in southeastern Minnesota that it'll look like? I guess I'm not real familiar with that area, so well, describe like that. Lanesboro or, yeah, the Whitewater, the Zumbro, those are rivers that are... Um, very complicated. They have lots of branches leading into them. They're very deeply incised into the bedrock. But here in the in the Minnesota, south of Mankato, we have the lower reach, the lower five to ten miles is a deep bedrock gorge in the case of the Blue Earth or a um, little bit of bedrock uh, at Red Jacket State or Red Jacket Park, but upstream of that it's glacial sediment exposed in the deep bluffs. You know, we're talking 100, 200 feet deep mm-hmm. rivers. But then there'll be a place that is not really a waterfall, but it is a waterfall in places like Miniopa. Right. Um, but it's a steep reach of the river um, where there's a, a stream is a lazy upland stream, and then it quickly descends into that deep gorge. What's happening there is that that deep part. Let me see. Let me see how I want to start to say this. Minnesota River formed in a geologic instant um, when a large glacial lake drained. And so what it did was suddenly cut a swath across Minnesota, about 200 feet deep, and all of the tributaries to the Minnesota at that point were waterfalls. And they had to quickly adjust to that event, um, or maybe not so quickly. Sometimes the waterfalls that formed, like Miniopa, are still pretty close Mm -hmm. to the, the Minnesota itself, and that's because there's rock there. But in other cases, those tributaries unzipped into the landscape, and they did that in proportion to the amount of water that they got. And if you just think about the geometry of the bend, the weird bend of the Minnesota River at Mankato, and think about what lies to the south, you know, because of that shape of the Minnesota, it's draining this huge fan-shaped part of Minnesota, enormous watershed, goes all the way into Iowa. All that water is funneling into the greater Blue Earth system of rivers, and it is accelerating this unzipping process of the river into the landscape. So it's deepening the main stem rivers. And as soon as that deepens, it creates little mini waterfalls of all the tributaries. So they start, start, have to steep, start, have to steepen. How, how do I say that? They have to steepen. Uh-huh. And it's what makes, it's what makes the landscape beautiful in Mankato. You know, everybody wants to live on uh, the edge of one of these steep bluffs. Right. And have this relief and the tree covered slopes. But when it happens too fast, if we give that stream too much water, it's just unraveling before our eyes. And we have 80 acres of land a year that are just lost to the river um, in the whole Minnesota basin. You see people's homes that are being impacted. The river itself is twice as wide in places. Um, It's impacting bridges across the river, county bridges, state highways, Highway 18, Highway 169. Um, We just pay a lot for having really active and erosive rivers. And we also pay, the ecosystem pays too, because all that sediment is overwhelming the stream itself. 
So that study was, you know, talked about those I, those areas where it's it's like a natural wetland um, where basically mm-hmm. things have a chance to filter through. So what is the solution then? Uh, I mean, do you? I I think a lot of ca- in a lot of cases we've filled in a lot of wetlands to make way for houses, buildings, et cetera. And so a lot of them have been taken away. Is that a big contributor to what's happened with the rivers that we've uh, removed a lot of those wetlands? Absolutely. I think that basin itself used to be 30% wetland and you know, it's not now, but we aren't naive enough to think that people are going to just put those back because that land is being used for other things Mm -hmm. now. Um, So if we can somehow mimic the natural way the rivers used to work or even try to get closer to it um, will dial back not just the nitrogen load but the phosphorus load and the water and the sediment that goes with it. So actually I feel like the pieces are coming together and I know this has been a problem and on people's radar since Arnie Carlson was governor. So mm-hmm. however long ago that was, we're probably talking 20, 30 years, Um, people in the Minnesota Basin have kind of known this was a problem and probably had a a good idea what the solution was. But we finally got a bill passed this session, and Freshwater lobbied hard about this, did a lot of education behind the scenes with key committee members, and we had some great friends, bipartisan friends, in both the House and the Senate. Um, Last year it was worked on by um, Representative Torkelson, who's down in that area west of Mankato, And this year it was, um, that was in the House, this year it was Todd Lippert. Um, And we, in the Northfield area, and then in the Senate, it was um, Weber, Bill Weber, who's from Laverne, upstream of you all. But everyone was recognizing that this is a problem. Let's give the farmers the tools they need to solve it, because currently the tools they have are more dedicated to keeping soil on the fields. And Mm. soil erosion has kind of leveled off. But one of the solutions to soil erosion in their minds is um, draining drain tile. Right. Because if you don't have runoff on the surface and you let the water soak in, then um, it, or conveyed out the the drain tile, then you're preserving your soil on your field. But what you don't see if you do have drain tile is that you're creating problems for everyone downstream of you, because you're getting the water from your field to the ditch in 20 minutes. And that means that even a small rain event is going to have a huge impact on the stream because all the water gets to the stream at the same time and is quite erosive. So this new program that's going to be going through our Board of Soil and Water Resources is going to pay farmers for a variety of practices to reduce that peak flow in the rivers and somehow hold water back. And I think the details are still being worked out, but it will cover a lot of things like perennial crops or wetland restoration, soil health initiatives that will store more water in the soil profile, and, and structures, you know, it can help, structures can help as well. Now, one of the things I see, it said that it, the legislature approved an initial $2 million in funding for the wetland projects. Is Does that go very far? Is that, I mean, it's a start, I know, so I'm just curious what your feelings are about that. It's like you said, you lobbied hard and, and you got that far, at least it's a start. It's a start, and we're really happy to have it there for a biennium. Um, A lot of that money is going to go for Bowser initiating this program, brand new, and they have to figure out what the menu of options is going to be. They probably have to convene some people to make sure that um, 
they would accept some of these options. But a lot of this work has been done, and that's what I want to make sure to bring to their attention. It might not take two whole years and $2 million just to get a project program started because we've been studying this for 15 years. We even had six years of stakeholder outreach down in the Mankato area. We came up with a simulation of the best management options and the costs. We have a little spreadsheet where people can plop in how many acres they want to do it and how much money it would take to do it and see what the sediment reduction is per dollar. So a lot of that work is done. And we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping to move Bowser faster in the direction of actual implementation because everyone is so ready for this. Is this the thing called the One Watershed, One Plan Program? Well, see, that's happening, too. So So that's something different? It is, and this is why I think all the key pieces are there, because if you start to think about a watershed, it spans different political boundaries across multiple counties and cities, and it's hard to get a couple counties to agree on (laughs) what they want to spend the money on. And so slowly over the whole state, the Board of Water and Soil Resources is asking people to plan on a watershed basis as opposed to a county basis. And so this is a slow process. We are often involved in helping facilitate these conversations. We have some skilled people who are good at getting people to come to agreement, harvesting the knowledge in the room, and you know, making sure everyone's opinion is respected. But really you need a, some kind of a memorandum of understanding between these different political entities for how the state money is going to be spent. And so once that agreement happens, the One Watershed, One Plan, is basically the agreement of the locals, to prioritize certain water features and spend the money in a given way, then the pipeline of spending opens up from Bowser. And this is a different, all state money going forward will be targeted to these areas that they have prioritized. That is separate from this new plan, this new, let me just try to help you understand the, the other new water storage initiative. The BMPs, the best management practices that farmers use now, are usually delivered by the Soil and Water Conservation Districts, mm-hmm. and those grew out of the Dust Bowl. And oh. so the approaches are really fields that are susceptible to wind and maybe some torrential rain erosion. And so, yeah, we're having that right now. It feels kind of Dust Bowlish these <laughs> days, but, you know, we've changed the way rain falls, too, or we've yes. seen a change in the way rain falls. And we really need um, practices that don't address soil erosion, but that address this excess water and what it does. That's the new water storage program. Okay, and then, so your plan then is different. How does that differ? So one watershed, one plan is just, the goal of that is just to get the locals to agree on their priorities. Okay. And then they can apply for state money. And what this water storage plan is another pot of state money that focuses on water storage. How realistic is this, do you think, to make happen? (laughs) I'm just curious, do you, have you talked with farmers? Are they thinking this is a good idea? Is there enough incentive for them yeah. to do it? Yeah, we have talked to farmers about this. And I think they recognize that there are some parts of their fields that flood every year that just aren't used to getting, you know, they don't want to get the tractor stuck in that area once again. I've talked to farmers in Nicollet County who said that it might not make sense for them to sequester more carbon in the soil because they've got these great big black, thick soils there, but they know they're doing harm to their downstream neighbors in Henderson and, and downstream by tiling their fields. And I think we already see wetland restoration happening for for enough money, you know, it will be done. 
it's got to be competitive with the crops or it has to help them on the field. And that's where the soil health practices might be appealing because soil health covers all of these things that allow water to infiltrate more easily into the soil by increasing the carbon, increasing the diversity of the microscopic organisms there. That helps the crops too. So if there's a co-benefit, then we think it'll be uh, more readily adopted. So what what is this actually going to look like? Are we just going to see a lot more what some people might call swamps around, a.k.a. wetlands, in certain areas? Are they going to be targeted areas? Or I I guess I'm trying to picture what this will actually look like. Well, the water storage targeted would be as far upstream as you can get. You kind of want the water to stay where it falls. And so um, I would say that low-relief upland landscape, upstream of St. Clair, upstream of the Beaufort Ditch, you know, those are the places where you might see um, less tiling, maybe tiles broken, maybe more wetland storage, storage along the stream corridor. But it might be as invisible as drain tiles are to you now, because I bet you don't know that the whole no. landscape is tiled. No, not so at it all. might just be, yeah, it might just be that the soil is now soaking in more water than you have seen. What what it'll look like to hopefully what it looks like to people in the region is streams that go back to normal. I mean, I used to canoe those rivers and. Some of them are unrecognizable now. They've gotten so straight and so flashy. Um, And by flashy, I mean they are raging streams right during a rain event, and immediately after, they'll just drop to nothing. Yeah. I know it's frustrating to the Mankato Paddling and Outing Club. Um, It's hard to know when you can get on the river anymore. Well, and especially with the drought these days, I mean, if we get a big rain event, then all of a sudden, it, it, like you said, it floods, comes flooding down, and then it quickly disappears. Yeah, and even a two-inch rain will do that. Um, I knew already that I had to wait and I had to do my canoeing down there before the corn got too big because the corn starts sucking it all up and sending it to the atmosphere. But I hope that this will mean a more natural stream flow. It's more consistent throughout the year. And then maybe some of the springs that used to flow along the steep slopes in the region. Um, There are some springs upstream on the Lesseur near that um, courthouse park. There's some historic places on the map that actually say springs were there. Well, those haven't flowed in in a long time. There's some places where there were some springs kind of near the ski hill south of Mankato. Um, I could see the staining on the bluff walls, you know. So maybe we'll see more spring flow, which would mean more recharge of our groundwater. We don't know what the long-term effect of shunting off all this water is to our, our groundwater situation, but can't help. <laughs> Will we be noticing anything different in the Minnesota River and then the Mississippi River? Does this all kind of connect together somehow that we will actually see something in, in the entire water area of Minnesota? I think so. And I think of, you know, of all the management practices, if you can address water, I think you'll see the impacts most quickly. The place where I said it's 200% wider, I'm thinking of a spot between Mankato and Lesseur, there's a part of the river there that's just gotten so wide, and you probably know where the work was done at 169 south of St. Peter, where it just felt like it was falling into the river. You know, hopefully we'll see a river that's not up against banks like that, that's not widening all the time and not eroding on both sides. That's very unnatural. And then hopefully hopefully we see a, a water quality that's better, clearer, and then we should see the impact in Lake Pepin. Lake Pepin is in the last 10 years, got another, let's see, what was it, half a meter of sediment Ooh. in the north half of the lake. 
that's noticeable to the people there, especially in low water here, have a meter. And that's mostly coming from the Minnesota River watershed. You know, we need to dial that back as soon as possible, or we're, we're going to have a much smaller lake captain. Is this going to impact then the nitrogen and things flowing in the river too? Because I I would assume if you've got the more of these wetlands, it's going to be absorbed, hopefully, so we won't have it yeah. running directly from the fields into the, the water. Exactly. And that's where it's helpful to have these additional studies. So the first one was on the sediment budget, second one on the phosphorus, the third one, you know, followed the original modeling, but then added nitrogen into the equation. So we're, we're understanding where we can maximize the number of um, benefits for the same strategy, the same reduction strategy. So it's a, boy, it's a good use of state money to be able to show that there's multiple benefits. How long of a project is this to, to make enough difference that we get back to, I don't know if you call it normal or what the word would be for it, but is it going to be decades or will we immediately see some results? I'm hoping we. I'm hoping the um, reduction in flow is immediate, but you know it's a moving target now mm. um, with the way our weather is changing. <laughs> yeah. um, we're we're in a period of extremes, and I don't think that's going to change going forward. What this does for us is builds in some resilience to the extremes that we're seeing. Imagine if the farmers who are facing drought right now had held some of that water back last year or the year before. And it was actually allowed to soak into the ground. I bet they would be in a better situation to tolerate the drought. I know that in the last really bad drought in the 80s, the best-looking corn on the landscape I saw was um, in Blue Earth County, down at the very, uh, just south of campus there, and, you know, where it's really flat. It's a glacial lake plain. It's clayey, so it held water. But in other parts of the county and the watershed, where it's glacial till or sand, you know, the crops are really stressed right now. But if a farmer had a little wetland or had better soil health and had, and was holding more in the soil profile, it might make the farm more resilient. We've so been... that's the best hope we have. I mean, that's where our focus is right now at Freshwater, really. You know, we are, it's going to be hard to predict the future. Um, the best we can do is try to restore a resilience system in our rivers and our lakes. Carrie, I have a question about the lakes then. You know, we've been talking about the rivers. Is there any work being done with the lakes? Because I think of all the sediment and things that go in, like Lake Washington with all the nitrogen. I mean, is it that a case when it's mostly from drain tiles or farms, or is it from homes on the lake that are doing a lot of fertilizing and that sort of thing, or is it a mix? It's a mix, I would say, but the largest source of um, nutrient loading in the watershed where you are is going to be agriculture. It's always good for lakeshore owners to not mow down to the edge and to not add excess fertilizer. They don't add phosphorus. It's not in lawn fertilizer anymore. Thank goodness. Um, Lakes are usually saturated with phosphorus. How can people find out more information about this if they want to just learn about what this program, what you guys are trying to do? Well, freshwater.org, we've got, we put out blog posts. They could sign up for blog posts. They could look at some of the literature we've already created. We try to do the science but then make it understandable to a non-scientist. This is what we do all the time with the legislators. There's not very many scientists in, in the legislature. So, you know, effective communication means not making someone feel like they are dumb, but explaining science in a way that the average person can understand, the average non-scientist, and just helping people understand that it's a problem, but it's not intractable. You know, we can address it. 
you're asking where people can go. So I would direct them to our website. I would direct them to the Board of Water and Soil Resources website. And Minnesota State University Mankato, their Water Resources Center there, Kim Musser, who's assistant director, she has she has a, there's a great web page associated with the Water Resources Center on campus and a lot of really good information. And outreach is happening all the time. I mean, she'll do field days and conferences and bring in speakers and all of those studies. I mean, there have been <laughs> there have been oodles of PhD theses that have been on this this subject area. Um, I think that the one watershed one plan will the benefit of that happening right now or starting in the next month or so is that they'll bring bringing all this information to, together and bringing it to the public. That's part of the process. They have to engage the public in this because they want to prioritize those water bodies that are important to the people in the watershed. So they'll be trying to explain the current state of affairs to everybody as well. Well, Carrie, you've been really in, informative and very helpful in helping us understand all this. I appreciate your time. We've been talking with Carrie Jennings of the Freshwater Society. Thank you, Karen. It, they are my favorite rivers to canoe, the Maple Cobb, Lassour. I just have taken so many people on those rivers, and I look forward to my next trip on them. Thank, Thank you. you. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.